Um, I don't know, some of you guys may know this, but I'm a, I'm a student, I'm in college, and uh, I am coming up on the end of that, which is great. Uh, that'll be in October, and I've been doing that for like a year and a half at Indiana Wesley, and I'm studying biblical studies, and uh, I just want to be completely honest with all of you, I hate college a lot. Um, it's awful. I don't like it. Um, I'm okay at it. I'm pretty good at it. I just don't like it at all. It's not how I learn. It's not how uh, I connect with uh, learning, and I just feel really forced into it. And so it's been really hard for me, but I'm close. I'm almost done. And uh, I think part of the reason why it's so difficult is because this is not my first round with college. I started college right out of high school 10 years ago in 2011, and that hurts me to say, but uh, it's, it's been that long. And so I, uh, I went to Ball State straight out of high school, and uh, I got there. And I was faced with all sorts of temptation. I went in a pretty good kid, and I just gave in to everything it threw at me. And I drank what I wanted, and I smoked what I wanted, and I slept with who I wanted, and I did whatever I wanted. And it was awful, and it eventually weighed up on me, and I dropped out my junior year. And so I went home and tried to get myself straightened out. And uh, my dad said, hey, I want you to get an associate's degree, something, you know. And so I went uh, to a community college. And it's really hard to find a community college that accepts music credits because that's what I went to school for. Uh, and so we found one in Kansas. So I have a degree from Kansas. And uh, I got that taken care of. And then sometime later, God said, hey, I want you to become part of my ministry. And um, I went and I got a hold of my friend Scott. He's a pastor. And uh, I said, Scott, what do I do? And he said, well, you should probably go back to school. He said, you know, you're going to need, you're going to need some schooling. You're going to need to know what you're talking about. And uh, he said, you know, you can do it without it, but it's going to be a lot harder. And I said, okay, you're probably right. And about a year later, I enrolled in Indiana Westland, and now here we are today. And so I'm almost done, and I know it's going to be worth it. I know it's going to be great. But I think to myself sometimes, if back before I ever sent in to enroll at Ball State, before I ever started college at all, uh, if I knew everything that was going to happen from then to now, like, if I knew about all the depression, years of depression, years of anxiety, if I knew about all the mistakes I was going to make, all the temptation I was going to face, if I knew about all the sleepless nights that I was going to have, if I knew about this sadness that I was going to feel over school, if I knew all of that, would I have still applied? And to be honest, I don't know. I don't know if I would have or not. Um... And I think that there's stuff like that in all of our lives. I think that's a pretty common feeling for people to have something in their life where, yeah, in the end, it was totally worth it, but man, it was hard to get there. And when you put yourself in that situation, like going back, like if you knew in the beginning, would you have gone through 
everything it took to get to the end? And I think a lot of us would say, I don't know. If we're brutally honest, I, I think we would say, I don't know. And, and the thing about that is, um, God is nothing like that. God is not like that at all. And that's what we're talking about today. Um, I want to jump right into Mark 15, 21 through 26. It says, a passerby named Simon, who was from Cyrene, was coming in from the countryside just then, and the soldiers forced him to carry Jesus' cross. Simon was the father of Alexander and Rufus. And they brought Jesus to a place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull. They offered him wine drugged with myrrh, but he refused it. Then the soldiers nailed him to the cross, they divided his clothes, and threw dice to decide who would get each piece. It was nine o'clock in the morning when they crucified him. A sign announced the charge against him, and it read, the king of the Jews. I don't know how familiar all of you are with the process of crucifixion, um, but I think we need to be. I think we need to know what that looks like, and I apologize because it's graphic and it's hard to talk about and it's hard to look at, but we need to confront it. It is the centerpiece of our belief as Christians. Um, and so the first step of crucifixion is flogging. Uh, they actually refer to it as the pre-death. The Romans would take the man to be crucified and they would take him in and they would take, we, we heard it called like a cat of nine tails, but it's a whip. It's a leather whip, and it has six tendrils. And off of those six tendrils, at the ends of each of those tiny pieces of leather, there are pieces of rock or metal or bone tied into the ends of those. And so what happens is when they hit the person, the hard pieces, the rock or the metal, they raise the blood to the surface. But then that bone catches, and when they pull the whip away, it tears the skin. It pulls it off in ribbons. And so they're actually shredding the skin off of these people and they're bleeding more profusely than they even normally would because they're trying to raise that blood to the surface. Um, the next portion is to carry your cross. You have to take it yourself. The prisoner has to carry the cross. Um, if we saw in the passage, Jesus had help carrying his. Uh, it actually just says that Simon carried it. I don't know if that means that he carried it for him or if he helped him, but Jesus was clearly having a hard time. This is probably because his skin was missing at this point. He would have been beaten so severely that it would have been exposed muscle in a lot of places. It wouldn't have even been skin. And now you've got this heavy, wooden, rugged, nasty cross laying across that wound. In fact, from that beating, a lot of people died then. A lot of people didn't make it past that. That's why it's called the pre-death. It's ugly. It's bad. And they want to soften them to the point that when they get to crucifixion, it doesn't take a lot at that point. And so he carries it. He gets it to the top of the hill. And that's when the actual crucifixion takes place. That's, that's the part we're all familiar with. That's the part about nailing them to the cross. And if we look at this picture, which is really rough, we see he's got nails through his hands, through the palms of his hands. That's kind of the classical way we think about it, but it's probably not accurate. It does say in Scripture that he's nailed through the hands, but what we got to understand is at that point in time in the world, this was sort of your hand, this area. It's kind of a one-size-fits-all term. 
And so while these guys understand why you couldn't be nailed through the hands, because if you pay attention, he's got, uh, he's got rope tying him to the cross while he's also nailed. The reason they add that is because if you were nailed through your palms, your body weight would tear you off the cross. It would rip straight through your hands. They don't have enough muscle to hold up your body weight. And so what they most likely did, and I'm getting all of this information on crucifixion from uh, a pastor named Nabil Qureshi, and he's really great. You should check him out sometime. But he says what's actually more likely is he was nailed through the median nerve right here in the center. It would go straight through these two bones right here in your arm, right, on, the, on either side of this bone. It's got that split, and that would hold up the weight of your body. But the problem with nailing somebody through the median nerve is that they would lose motor function in their hands. And so now his hands don't work either. And he's nailed there and he's hanging up, but the other nail goes through the two feet. The feet would be crossed and nailed through. And the reason is because they want them to suffer as long as possible. And so if you were just nailed like this and you had nothing to support you underneath, you couldn't breathe because your entire body weight's dragging you down. And so you need to get breath to stay alive to keep being tortured, right? And so they nail them by the feet so the prisoner can push against the fresh wound in their feet to raise their body up fast enough and just enough that they can get a breath in and then they can come back down. And so each individual breath is resting on inflicting even more pain on yourself just to stay alive. And so while a lot of people, I'm sure, would fail at some point along the way just giving up, um, what we come to realize is that the Romans actually eventually just kill you. Uh, they, they don't want you to live. In fact, uh, Nabil says that there is no record of anyone surviving Roman crucifixion. It's not a thing that happened. This was a death sentence, and it worked. And what they would usually do is they'd come by and they would break your knees so they'd collapse underneath you and then you couldn't raise yourself up to breathe and you would suffocate to death. The other thing they would do is they would shove a spear through your side up into your heart, puncturing it and killing you. We see both of those things in the biblical story. Um, the third thing they would do that is not mentioned in the Bible is they would actually crush some of their skulls to ensure that they died. This is brutal. It's awful. We move on to Mark 15, 27 through 32, it says, Two revolutionaries were crucified with him, one on his right and one on his left. The people passing by shouted abuse, shaking their heads in mockery. Ha! Look at you now, they yelled at him. You said you were going to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days. Well, then save yourself and come down from the cross. The leading priests and teachers of religious law also mocked Jesus. He saved others, they scoffed, but he can't save himself. Let this Messiah, this King of Israel, come down from the cross so we can see it and believe him. Even the men who were crucified with Jesus ridiculed him. As if it's not enough to be laid out and beaten within an inch of your life, and then to carry the thing that's going to kill you to the top of a hill, and then to nail you to it, hoping that you're going to suffocate to death, they've nailed a sign above him that says the king of the Jews. It's all a big joke. And they mock him. They're making fun of him. They're making fun of him. He's almost naked, nailed out on display for everybody. I can't think of anything more shameful 
of any situation more shameful. I mean, can you imagine what that felt like? Because I don't have a compartment for that. Like, I don't have a frame of reference for anything he went through. It's not on my radar. I don't think it's probably on any of ours. And so I think the question we have to ask is, who would do that? Who would choose that? Who would choose to do that? And the answer is God. We hear Jesus say over and over again. We hear him say, I'm going to Jerusalem and they're going to kill the Son of Man. He tells his disciples this. It happens all throughout the Gospels. We hear him say, I lay my life down. I choose to lay my life down. He makes that decision. God makes that decision. We have to be incredibly aware that when we look at a picture of the crucifixion, that when we read Genesis and we read Exodus or Leviticus, when we read the Old Testament, that same grandiose God that appears in a burning bush and that lays the foundation of time and space, the same God that hung the stars in the sky, that told the oceans where they could go and where they had to stop, that same God that sent uh, an angel of death upon Egypt and killed the firstborn of every single firstborn in Egypt, this same God who is invincible, he's infinite, he doesn't die, he has no beginning, he has no end, and yet right here we see him and he's strung up, that's God, and he's dying, like that's what's happening to him right there. And you just kind of have to ask like, what would warrant that? What would make somebody want to do that? Why would God in a million years choose to be tortured and die? And the only answer is you. You are the reason that God did that. And like, I know a lot of us have a hard time seeing the good in ourselves or seeing the worth in ourselves or the value in ourselves. But what you need to understand is when God looks at you, he says, you're worth that. And, and he's right all the time. He's never wrong. That makes that true. You're worth that. The thing is, God exists outside of time and space. And I think this is the coolest part about all of this, is that he sees the ending of every possible route in life, right? Like, it, this is a really random reference, but like, it's like Doctor Strange in the, in the uh, Infinity War where he, he, he sees every possible outcome that could happen in this given situation and, and then he sees how it's going to end, right? And there's only one chance they've got, right? And that's exactly what I think is happening with God. I think God looked at the infinite possibilities of time and space and saw that the only way he could end up with you was that. And so he looks at us he looks at each one of us. He looks at Jan, or he looks at Mark, or he looks at Jason, and he says, I love them, and I will do that for them. I want to do that for them. And he had to think, like, I know what they're going to do. I know that I'm going to make this beautiful creation. I'm going to make this thing worthy of, of the one true God of the universe stepping back and looking at it and saying, this is perfect. This is good. And they're going to destroy it. 
They're going to destroy my trust. They're going to turn on me. They're going to hate me. They're not going to believe in me. But I'm going to go do that anyways because I love them that much. It's, it's really hard to fully grasp why he would want to do that. But it's all I can understand is that it's the only way. That was the only way. He loved you so much that he chose this route. And so the point today is God didn't work around our mistake. God didn't work around the problem we set in front of him. It's not like he made this really good situation. He didn't make Eden. He didn't you know, put us in there and, and then we just made this mistake. And then he goes, oh man, what do I do now? No, it's when he made Eden, when he made all of creation, he knew that was going to happen. This was always the plan. It wasn't plan B. It wasn't the backup plan. The cross was plan A because that was the only way. And so what I want you to understand when you look at this image of Christ hanging on this cross is that that is what love looks like. And we avoid it because it's hard. Like we don't... like. I mean, every time I watch The Passion, it messes me up. Every single time. And I don't know anybody that it doesn't. And that's because it's hard to watch. But it happened. Like, it was a true event in history, in time and space. And it's really hard to talk about and to think about. But it is what love looks like. It is the ultimate display of love. It was God's decision for what love was going to look like from the beginning it is a perfect reflection of his character and who he is and when we look at this Christ risen up on a cross hanging stretched out you and I need to recognize that that is it that's what we need to look like in the way we live for others and it's selfless and it's awful and it's got to be painful but he did it And so what he's calling us to do is to live like him. He says, if you're going to follow me, then take up your cross. It's going to be hard, but what we've been called to do is to love like him. And it's not a set of rules. It's not a list of do's and don'ts. It's not a a, a check this off going to church once a week or whatever. It's just love. Jesus said the, the, the greatest commandment is to love God above all else with everything you've gotten, then to love your neighbor like you love yourself. And what I'm saying is, is it's not like we have to earn that. That's been given to you already. He already did it. It's yours. Just take it. You can't earn it. But what I do want us to do, what what I want to do better, is when I see that picture, when I see Jesus, when I think about Jesus hanging on that cross, when I think about what he did for me, that it just changes me that it just makes me better that it just makes me love better because he loved me first it's almost like he's saying could you just try living for me because I already died for you so could you just try that and we all could do so much better at that it's so hard it's so hard to just like set yourself aside and to just love others like you love yourself because we're so good at loving ourselves but that's what he's asking us to do And so I want to pray about that. Father, I thank you so much that we can learn about you. And I thank you for holidays like Easter and the fact that it's coming right around the corner. 
And that this time of year, we just, it seems like we reflect a little more heavily on what you've done, on who you are. And I just pray to you that we can set that concept aside and that we don't have to wait around until specific times a year to remember what you've done. I just pray that you just write it on our hearts and our minds so deeply that we just can't escape it. And I fail at it every day, and I know everybody in this room probably does. And I just pray that your Holy Spirit just move in each of us like it never has before and just makes us better and just makes us love better. And I pray this in Jesus' name.